The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Chapter 11 At the Window. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another chapter of the immortal classic H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Wells is a science fiction blockbuster, monolithic-type force, even today. Every single alien invasion story you've seen, the bar was set by War of the Worlds. Every single Invisible Man story started with H.G. Wells. Every single trip to the moon, well, Jules Verne probably did it too. But the point is, Wells was visionary in his knowledge of science. And he was able to transport people using that knowledge of science to locations that were normal enough for them to relate to. And then you have some kind of fantastic thing happen like Martians coming down and invading. And they call that Wells' Law. In order to balance out the fantastic nature of a Martian invasion, he has to throw in sprinkles of normal things like talking to neighbors and dealing with landlords and things like that. If you've been listening to the entire previous chapters of War of the Worlds, you know that we took a look at H.G. Wells' life before we actually read the story. I got an interesting review about Public Domain Playhouse. They said that it was a story that they would probably never read themselves, but they enjoyed it as a podcast. So spread the word to your friends if they want to hear timeless classics, but don't want to be bothered with reading that dull, boring stuff without cool sound effects. So after taking a look at Wells' life as his childhood, as a preteen, as an adult, and eventually as a literary icon, in both fiction and non-fiction genres, we're going to take a look today at Wells' literary influence on other writers. As you can imagine, the list goes on and on. The science fiction historian John Clute describes Wells as the most important writer the genre has yet seen, and notes his work has been central to both British and American science fiction. Science fiction author and critic Algis Boudris said Wells remains the outstanding expositor of both the hope and the despair which are embodied in the technology and which are the major facts of life in our world. H.G. Wells was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature no less than four times, 1921, 32, 35, and 46. Wells so influenced the real exploration of Mars and that an impact crater on the planet was actually named after him. Wells's genius was his ability to create a stream of brand new, wholly original stories out of thin air. Originality was Wells's calling card. In a six-year stretch from 1995 to 1901, he produced a stream of what he called scientific romance novels, which included The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, and The First Men in the Moon. This was a dazzling display of new thought, endlessly copied since. A book like The War of the Worlds inspired every one of the thousands of alien invasion stories that followed. It burned its way into the psyche of mankind and changed us all forever. Cultural historian John Higgs of The Guardian. Indeed, Wells was a giant that still lives among us today. 
In the United Kingdom, Wells's work was a key model for the British scientific romance, and other writers in that mode, such as Olaf Stapleton, J.D. Beresford, S. Fowler Wright, and Naomi Mitchison, all drew on Wells's example. Wells was also an important influence on British science fiction of the period after the Second World War, with Arthur C. Clarke and Brian Aldiss, expressing strong admiration both for Wells's work. Among contemporary British science fiction writers, Stephen Baxter, Christian Priest, and Adam Roberts have all acknowledged Wells's influence on their writing. All three are vice presidents of the H.G. Wells Society. Wells also had a strong influence on British scientist J.B.S. Haldane, who wrote Daedalus, or Science in the Future, in 1924, The Last Judgment, and On Being the Right Size, from the essay collection Possible Worlds, published in 1927, and Biological Possibilities for the Human Species in the Next 10,000 Years, published in 1963. So as you can see, Wells' influence ranged for a long time, and indeed continues to this day, which is why Public Domain Playhouse pays homage to the great H.G. Wells. Stay with us tonight, Chapter 11, At the Window. Wells also had a strong influence on the British scientist J.B.S. Haldane, who wrote Daedalus, or Science in the Future, The Last Judgment, and On Being the Right Size, from the essay collection Possible Worlds in 1927, and Biological Possibilities for the Human Species in the Next 10,000 Years, published in 1963, which are speculations about the future of human evolution and life on other planets, something that Wells kicked the ball off first with. Haldane gave several lectures about these topics, which in turn influenced other science fiction writers, so Wells' influence on one writer ends up influencing numerous other writers as well. In the United States, Hugo Gernsback reprinted most of Wells' work in the pulp magazine Amazing Stories, regarding Wells' work as texts of central importance to the self-conscious new genre. Later American writers, such as Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Frank Herbert, and Ursula K. Le Guin, all recalled being influenced by Wells' work. Not surprising. Sinclair Lewis's early novels were strongly influenced by Wells' realistic social novels, such as The History of Mr. Polly. Lewis also named his first son, Wells, after the author. In an interview with the Paris Review, Vladimir Nabokov described Wells as his favorite writer when he was a boy and a great artist. He went on to cite The Passionate Friends and Veronica, The Time Machine, and The Country of the Blind as superior to anything else written by Wells's British contemporaries. In an apparent allusion to Wells's socialism and political themes, Nabokov said, Sociological cogitations can be safely ignored, of course, but his romances and fantasies are superb. Jorge Luis Borgia wrote many short pieces on Wells, in which he demonstrates a deep familiarity with much of Wells's work. While Borgia's wrote several critical reviews, including a mostly negative review of Wells's film, Things to Come, 
He regularly treated Wells as a canonical figure of fantastic literature. Late in his life, Borgia included the Invisible Man and the Time Machine in his prologue to A Personal Library, a curated list of 100 great works of literature that he undertook at the behest of Argentine publishing house M.C. Canadian author Margaret Atwood read Wells' books, and he also inspired writers of European speculative fiction, such as Carol Kapek and Yevgeny Yamyatin. Yevgeny Yamyatin. Wells is such a prominent figure in literature that he's actually been represented in other people's literature. For example, the superhuman protagonist of J.D. Beresford's 1911 novel, The Hamdenshire Wonder, Victor Scott, was based on Wells. In M.P. Scheele's short story, The Primate of the Rose, 1928, there is an unpleasant womanizer named E.P. Crooks, who was written as a parody of Wells. Wells had attacked Scheele's Prince Zaleski when it was first published in 1895, and this was Scheele's response. Wells praised Scheele's The Purple Cloud in 1901, in turn, Scheele expressed admiration for Wells, referring to him at a speech to the Horsham Rotary Club in 1933 as, My friend, Mr. Wells. In C.S. Lewis's novel The Hideous Strength in 1945, the character Jules is a caricature of Wells, and much of Lewis's science fiction was written both under the influence of Wells and as an antithesis to his work, or as he put it, an exorcism to the influence it had on him. Brian Aldiss's novella The Saliva Tree in 1966, Wells was a small off-screen guest role. In Saul Bellow's novel Mr. Samler's Planet in 1970, Wells is one of several historical figures the protagonist met when he was a young man. In The Dancers at the End of Time by Michael Moorcock in 1976, Wells has an important part too. In The Map of Time 2008 by Spanish author Felix J. Palma, Wells is one of several historical characters in that story, as well as one of two Georges in Paul Levinson's 2013 time travel novelette, Ian, George, and George, published in Analog magazine. Wells has also played a character in movies, too, dramatic roles. Rod Taylor portrays Wells in the 1960 science fiction film The Time Machine, based on the novel of the same name, in which Wells uses his time machine to try and find his utopian society. Malcolm McDowell portrays Wells in the 1979 science fiction film Time After Time, in which Wells uses a time machine to pursue Jack the Ripper to the present day. In the film, Wells meets Amy in the future, who then returns in 1893 to become his second wife, Amy Catherine Robbins. Ironically, I believe that character was played by who would become Malcolm McDowell's real wife, now married to Ted Danson, Mary Steenburgen. Wells is portrayed in the 1985 story Time Lash from the 22nd season of the BBC science fiction television series Doctor Who. In this story, Herbert, an enthusiastic temporary companion to the Doctor, is revealed to be a young H.G. Wells. 
The plot is loosely based upon the themes and characters of the Time Machine, with references to War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau. The story jokingly suggests that Wells' inspiration for his later novels came from his adventure with the Sixth Doctor. In the BBC Two anthology series Encounters about imagined meetings between historical figures, Beautiful Lies by Paul Pender on the 15th of August 1992 centered on an acrimonious dinner party attended by Wells, who was played by Richard Todd, George Orwell by John Finch, and William Empson by Patrick Reichart. The character of Wells also appeared in several episodes of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, the British TV miniseries The Infinite Worlds of H.G. Wells, the Disney Channel original series Phil of the Future, which centers on time travel, in the 2006 television docudrama H.G. Wells' War with the World, where Wells was played by Michael Sheen, a television episode of World's End of Cold Case in 2007 is about the discovery of human remains in the bottom of a well leads to the reinvestigation of the case of a housewife who went missing during Orson Welles' radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Welles made an appearance on the science fiction television series Warehouse 13, where there was a female version, Helena G. Wells. Comedian Paul F. Tompkins portrayed a fictional Wells as the host of the Dead Authors podcast. H.G. Wells as a young boy appears in the Legends of Tomorrow episode, The Magnificent Eight. Also in a four-part series, The Nightmare Worlds of H.G. Wells in 2016, where Wells was played by Ray Winstone. In 2017, there was a television series version of Time After Time, based on the 1979 film. H.G. Wells is portrayed by Freddie Stroma in this particular case. And in 2019, there's a television adaptation of The War of the Worlds. The character of George, played by Rafe Spall, demonstrates a number of elements of Wells' own life, including his estrangement from his wife, and unmarried cohabitation with the character of Amy. Finally, Wells appears quite a bit in literary papers as well. In 1954, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign purchased the H.G. Wells Literary Papers and Correspondence Collection. The university's rare book and manuscript library holds the largest collection of Wells manuscripts, correspondence, first editions, and publications in the United States. Among these unpublished material and the manuscripts of such works as The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. The collection includes first editions, revisions, and translations. The letters contain generally family correspondence, communications from publishers, material regarding the Fabian Society, and letters from politicians and public figures, most notably George Bernard Shaw and Joseph Conrad. If you join us for the next chapter, we will take a look at Wells and how he impacted radio with Orson Wells' famous rendition of The War of the Worlds. But tonight we're getting ready to read Chapter 11, At the Window, 
So let's take a quick moment to actually take a look back at what happened at Book 1, Chapter 10, In the Storm. As you recall, if you were with us last time, the narrator drives he and his wife to Leatherhead, where he has family. And he ends up leaving his wife there. Though he should have stayed in Leatherhead that night to be with his wife, as he says even later on in the chapter, he has to go back to Woking to return the horse and cart he rented. After all, that was a whole two bucks. By the way, these notes are brought to us from shmoop.com, S-H-M-O-O-P, your source for literary analysis, aside from me. The narrator also confesses to having some war fever. He wants to be there and see the Martians defeated, and he's sure that his wife wouldn't support that, probably for good reason. So during chapter 10, it is, as Schmoop says, pardon the phrase, a dark and stormy night. In chapter 10. And it's also called In the Storm, so that kind of makes sense. The narrator passes houses, but can't tell if the people are sleeping soundly, or they've run away, or if they're nervously watching for some new disaster to come take place. Our narrator remembers that things were so much easier in the beginning of the book, when he could be sure that dark houses at night meant people were sleeping. And suddenly... Dun dun dun... The third cylinder arrives. But that's not all contributing to In the Storm. The narrator sees one of the Martian's tripods, which he describes as moving like a milking stool tilted and bowled violently along the ground. That doesn't exactly sound too scary to us, but maybe we're not imagining it right. You know, were there any fangs? on this milk stool. You ought to check out some of the images for the covers of various versions of War of the Worlds because some of those tripods have fangs. <laughs> then, as if one tripod wasn't enough, another monstrous tripod appears in front of the narrator. He crashes the horse and cart that he's racing back to the landlord and of course, it tips over, breaks the horse's neck, and the poor animal dies. So I guess he won't be returning that horse and cart to the landlord, after all. The narrator ends up watching the tripods pass over him, making some strange aloo, aloo sound. Then, after the Martian tripods pass, the narrator basically crawls most of the way home in a terrible storm full of hail and lightning and thunder. It's such a bad storm that he didn't see the landlord's dead body until he stumbles upon it and there's a flash of lightning to let him know. But at least now he doesn't have to come up with some excuse to the landlord like, I'm sorry, I got spooked by something walking around like a Martian tripod and a milk stool bowled violently along the ground. The narrator lets himself into his house and he spends some time shivering. And that's what happens in Chapter 10, In the Storm. And now for tonight, Chapter 11, At the Window. 
Chapter 11 At the Window I have already said that my storms of emotion have a trick of exhausting themselves. After a time, I discovered that I was cold and wet, and with little pools of water about me on the stair carpet. I got up almost mechanically, went into the dining room and drank some whiskey, and then I was moved to change my clothes. After I had done that, I went upstairs to my study, but why I did so, I do not know. The window of my study looks over the trees and the railway towards Horsel Common. In the hurry of our departure, this window had been left open. The passage was dark, and by contrast with the picture, the window frame enclosed, impenetrably dark. I stopped short in the doorway. The thunderstorm had passed. The towers of the Oriental College and the pine trees about it had gone. And very far away, lit by a vivid red glare, the common about the sand pits was visible. Across the light, huge black shapes, grotesque and strange, moved busily to and fro. It seemed indeed as if the whole country in that direction was on fire. A broad hillside set with minute tongues of flame, swaying and writhing with the gusts of the dying storm, and throwing a red reflection upon the cloud scud above. Every now and then, a haze of smoke from some nearer conflagration drove across the window and hid the Martian shapes. I could not see what they were doing nor the clear form of them, nor recognize the black objects they were busied upon. Neither could I see the nearer fire, though the reflections of it danced on the wall and ceiling of the study. A sharp, resinous tang of burning was in the air. I closed the door noiselessly and crept towards the window. As I did so, the view opted out until... On the one hand, it reached to the houses about Woking Station, and on the other, to see the charred and blackened pine woods of Byfleet. There was a light down below the hill, on the railway near the arch, and several of the houses along the Mayberry Road and the streets near the station were glowing ruins. The light upon the railway puzzled me at first, there were a black heap and a vivid glare, and to the right of that, a row of yellow oblongs. Then I perceived this was a wrecked train. The forepart smashed and on fire, the hinder carriages still upon the rails. Between these three main centers of light, the houses, the train, and the burning county towards Chotham, stretched irregular patches of dark country broken here and there by intervals of dimly glowing and smoking ground. It was the strangest spectacle, that black expanse set with fire. It reminded me more than anything else of the potteries at night. At first I could distinguish no people at all, though I peered intently for them. Later I saw against the light of Woking Station a number of black figures hurrying one after the other across the line. 
And this was the little world in which I had been living securely for years. This fiery chaos. What had happened in the last seven hours I still did not know. Nor did I know, though I was beginning to guess the relation between these mechanical colossi and the sluggish lumps I had seen disgorged from the cylinder. With a queer feeling of impersonal interest, I turned my desk chair to the window, sat down, and stared at the blackened country, and particularly at the three gigantic black things that were going to and fro in the glare about the sand pits. They seemed amazingly busy. I began to ask myself what they could be. Were they intelligent mechanisms? Such a thing, I felt, was impossible. Or did a Martian sit within each, ruling, directing, using, much as a man's brain sits and rules in his body? I began to compare the things to human machines, to ask myself for the first time in my life how an ironclad or a steam engine would seem to an intelligent lower animal. The storm had left the sky clear. And over the smoke of the burning land, the little fading pinpoint of Mars was dropping into the west when a soldier came into my garden. I heard a slight scraping at the fence, and rousing myself from the lethargy that had fallen upon me, I looked down and saw him dimly, clamoring over the palings. At the sight of another human being, my torpor passed and I leaned out of the window eagerly. Hist! said I in a whisper. He stopped astride of the fence in doubt. Then he came over and across the lawn to the corner of the house. He bent down and stepped softly. Who's there? He said, also whispering, standing under the window and peering up. Where are you going? I asked. God knows. Are you trying to hide? That's it. Come into the house, I said. I went down, unfastened the door, and let him in, and locked the door again. I could not see his face. He was hatless, and his coat was unbuttoned. My God, he said, as I drew him in. What has happened? I asked. What hasn't? In the obscurity, I could see he made a gesture of despair. They waked us out. Simply wiped us out, he repeated again and again. He followed me almost mechanically into the dining room. Take some whiskey, I said, pouring out a stiff dose. He drank it. Then abruptly he sat down before the table, put his head on his arms, and began to sob and weep like a little boy. In a perfect passion of emotion, while I... With a curious forgetfulness of my own recent despair, stood beside him, wondering. It was a long time before he could steady his nerves to answer my questions, and then he answered perplexingly and brokenly. He was a driver in the artillery, and had only come into action about seven. At that time, firing was going on across the common and it was said the first party of Martians were crawling slowly towards their second cylinder under cover of a metal shield. Later, 
the shield staggered up on tripod legs and became the first of the fighting machines I had seen. The gun he drove had been unlimbered near Horsel in order to command the sand pits, and its arrival it was that had precipitated the action. As the limber gunners went to the rear, his horse trod in a rabbit hole and came down, throwing him into a depression of the ground. At the same moment, the gun exploded behind him. The ammunition blew up. There was fire all about him, and he found himself lying under a heap of charred dead men and dead horses. I lie still, he said, scared out of my wits, with the forequarter of a horse atop me. We'd been wiped out. And the smell, good God, like burnt me. I was hurt across the back by the fall of the horse. And there I had to lie until I felt better, just like parade it had been a minute before. Then stumble, bang, swish. Wiped out, he said. He had hid under the dead horse for a long time, peeping out furtively across the common. The cardigan men had tried a rush in skirmishing order at the pit, simply to be swept out of existence. Then the monster had risen to its feet and had begun to walk leisurely to and fro across the common among the few fugitives with its head-like hood turning about exactly like the head of a cowled human being. A kind of arm carried out a complicated metallic case about which green flashes scintillated, and out of the funnel of this there smoked the heat ray. In a few minutes there was so far as the soldier could see, not a living thing left upon the common, and every bush and tree upon it that was not already a blackened skeleton was burning. The hussars had been on the road beyond the curvature of the ground, and he saw nothing of them. He heard the Martians rattle for a time and then become still. The giant saved Woking Station and its cluster of houses until the last. Then in a moment, the heat ray was brought to bear, and the town became a heap of fiery ruins. Then the thing shut off the heat ray, and turning its back upon the artilleryman, began to waddle away towards the smoldering pine woods that sheltered the second cylinder. As it did so, a second glittering titan built itself up out of the pit. The second monster followed the first, and at that, the artilleryman began to crawl very cautiously toward the hot heather ash towards Horsall. He managed to get alive into the ditch by the side of the road, and so escaped to Woking. There his story became ejaculatory. The place was impassable. It seemed there were few people alive there, frantic for the most part, and many burned and scalded. He was turned aside by the fire 
and hid among some almost scorching heaps of broken wall as one of the Martian giants returned. He saw this one pursue a man, catch him up in one of its steely tentacles, and knock his head against the trunk of a pine tree. At last, after nightfall, the artillerymen made a rush for it and got over the railway embankment. Since then, he had been skulking along towards Mayberry in the hope of getting out of danger Londonward. People were hiding in trenches and cellars, and many of the survivors had made off towards Woking Village and Send. He had been consumed with thirst until he found one of the water mains near the railway arch smashed, and the water bubbling out like a spring upon the road. That was the story I got from him, bit by bit. He grew calmer telling me, and trying to make me see the things he had seen. He had eaten no food since midday, he told me early in his narrative, and I found some mutton and bread in the pantry and brought it into the room. We lit no lamp for fear of attracting the Martians, and ever and again our hands would touch upon bread or meat. As he talked, things about us became darkly out of the darkness, and the trampled bushes and broken rose trees outside the window grew distinct. It would seem that a number of men or animals had rushed across the lawn. I began to see his face, blackened and haggard, as no doubt mine was also. When we had finished eating, we went softly upstairs to my study, and I looked again out of the open window. In one night, the valley had become a valley of ashes. The fires had dwindled now. Where flames had been, there were now streamers of smoke. But the countless ruins of shattered and guttered and gutted houses and blasted and blackened trees that the night had hidden stood out now, gaunt and terrible in the pitiless light of dawn. Yet here and there some object had had the luck to escape. A white railway signal here, the end of a greenhouse there, white and fresh amid the wreckage. Never before in the history of warfare had destruction been so indiscriminate and so universal. And shining with the growing light of the east, three of the metallic giants stood about the pit, their cowls rotating as though they were surveying the desolation they had made. It seemed to me that the pit had been enlarged, and ever and again puffs of vivid green vapor streamed up and out of it towards the brightening dawn. Streamed up, streamed up, streamed up, whirled, broke, and vanished. Beyond were the pillars of fire about Chotham. They became pillars of bloodshot smoke at the first touch of day. And there you have it for Chapter 11 from Book 1 from the immortal classic H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Tonight's chapter was a doozy hiding out at the window, describing the charred wreckage that he had seen of his hometown of Horsell Common, Woking, and Chotham. 
Please join us again next time for Chapter 12, What I Saw of the Destruction of Weybridge and Shepherdton. Hmm, I wonder what that could be about. Perhaps Weybridge and Shepherdton survived destruction, and it's just an ironic title. I'm going with that because I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy. Thank you very much for joining us for Chapter 10 at the Window. Remember to come on back, and if you enjoyed this, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss a single chapter, because as always, we'll see you in the next chapter. Thank you very much. I'm Bart, your hosting guide. I hope you enjoyed yourself. From Public Domain Playhouse, we bring you the literature of antiquity today. Stories that you would never read, but put into a podcast form to make it enjoyable. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you in the next chapter.